You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. As the public school system grapples with the start date for the new academic year, we hear from the headmaster of Iolani School. The campus is home to more than 500 students, and it's taking a conservative approach to keeping its school community safe. Iolani is one of only a handful of schools which board students, but unlike other campuses which have reduced capacity, the number of boarders is actually up. Here's Tim Cottrell. Our incoming class for next year is 80 students, and we've configured our program to be able to support them on campus, given all the safety precautions that we would need, you know, given the, the circumstances. So there's a lot that has been redone for the boarding program to take that into account. Probably the biggest impact on the program is that in prior years, the students had many, many opportunities to leave campus and go to Waikiki and go to the mall and go to different places, hiking and the beach and things like that. So there'll be many more restrictions for them, right? So you, you could think of them almost as a family that quasi stay at home and that a lot of their social life will take place on the Iolani campus. The other challenge we have is travel. The restrictions put on travel have made it very challenging for some of our families to be able to get to Oahu, they may be facing a 20 or a 14-day quarantine in another country that they travel to, and then another potential 14-day quarantine here. So they are part of our focus in terms of the online program that we're going to have this year that runs in parallel to our on-campus academic program. Compared to last year, uh, you know, have you had to reduce the number of boarding students? No, this is actually more students than last year. Really? No. Well, because our program is new, so we started two years ago, and the total program has a capacity of 112 students. And in the first year, we took primarily 9th and 10th graders. And the next day, then they moved up to 10 and 11. And last year, we took 9th graders and some 10th graders. So we're kind of, you know, in the school, we call it just a slow bake for the program to build from the bottom up. So next year would be the year where we would conceive of being more toward the full capacity with a full grade of seniors or full class of seniors. If, let's say, one of the students tests positive, then you have the space on campus to be able to isolate. We do. So we have those protocols for a student to, who, if our student were to test positive, to isolate. We have, you know, the tracking and tracing. So the interior of our dorm is four floors, 28 students per floor, but the students live in small areas that we call pods. So these are clusters of three or four rooms. So we're using kind of a model of those pods being a family unit. So when the students are in the dorm in any other space, they have to wear PPE. They either have to wear a face shield or a face mask. When they're in their little family unit, that's relaxed. And that's part of, in the event of a student being diagnosed, that all those students would be subject to quarantine, and we have enough capacity in the building to be able to isolate students for that period of time. You know, the, the other thing that you have to really keep track of is the kind of sanitization that you do. So we've added additional people to very routinely and rigorously sanitize the spaces in there, like the bathrooms and other common spaces. It's the space and the size of the program, right? How manageable is the program? You know, given the travel difficulties, we have 80 students enrolled. We'll probably see 35 to 40 on campus. So for us on campus, that means every student can have individual room of their own. And some, just some things like that that, you know, I think a larger program wouldn't be able to accommodate. We also have two infirmaries, and we have one infirmary that's entirely dedicated to the boarding program. And your boarders, are they predominantly from abroad or are they from neighbor islands? They're from both. We have students from neighbor islands. We have students from the mainland U.S. We're probably predominantly, you'd say, Pacific Rim. So the students are from the countries around the Pacific Rim. But we have students from Mexico. We just graduated a student from Turkey. We have some students from uh, Russia, Ukraine coming, right? So, you know, our, the, the goal of our program and the reason we built the dorm was to add global diversity to the conversations on our campus. So, you know, the, in, in an ideal world, our program matures to include students from all around the world and including our, our neighbor islands and the U.S. and Canada and you know, the places closer closer to home. And I know with everybody looking toward the new academic year, many schools did roll out a summer program because it was, you know, smaller and more controlled. And if there was a positive case, you folks could react to it and just kind of see how might be the best way to approach a positive case. And, and I believe you folks had one on your athletic staff, correct? Correct. So we 
chose to have our summer program entirely online. And, and the reason for that was really creating the time for the administration, faculty, and staff to create a very well thought out plan for the school year on campus. And then, as you say, this year we started some conditioning programs for our sports. And each sport had to create an operational plan that was authorized by the administration. So we, at that time, we had swimming, tennis, and football uh, practicing on campus. And then we had the case where a coach uh, had a positive test, and we had to go into our entire protocol. And the protocol for the operational part of the football program, the way it was run, the football players wore PPE throughout the entire practice. The entire practice was socially distanced. They were cohorted into small groups that didn't interact. So football practice was actually four groups of about 15 students that would be there at different times on opposite ends of the field. So we, we separated people quite well. When we got the positive case, we took a very conservative stance on that, and we suspended the entire program and notified the families. We were able to arrange for tests for everybody, and fortunately, there wasn't another positive test, right? Everybody who was tested came back negative, and I think you know, that speaks a little bit to what schools are going to are confronted with and are going to have to handle. We can't control if people become infected outside of our school community. The only thing we can control is to do everything we can do to stem transmission on our campus. And that was the whole football program was running to do that. So we're, we're somewhat happy that nobody else was infected, and that might, might be a testament to, to how the program was run. As you were describing your football program, right, I mean, parents are there at home trying to figure out what is this going to be like for my child when they go to band or orchestra or chorus. Yes, yeah, some things aren't going to be possible, right? So when I, when I say kind of, so in, in our, on our campus, we're focusing very heavily on personal protection equipment, PPE. Our students on, in all interior spaces will wear a face mask and a face shield and faculty all the time. So that's, you know, the, the idea that if, if there is an infected person, you want to try to stop the virus from getting into the air, and you also want to stop it from being able to enter somebody else's mouth, nose, or eyes, right? Uh, we have really careful hand hygiene that's going to go on throughout the day. All of our classrooms are socially distanced. We're using cohorting throughout our campus. We're adding out a lot of outdoor spaces, right, as it's shown that transmission outdoors is much less probable than indoors. So our baseball field is going to be covered with large tents. And for lunch and free periods, our kids will go there. They'll scan in from a QR code where they sit. So we'll be able to track and trace who sits where and next to whom on any given day. So we're really focusing on all of those kinds of things um, in order to make the campus as safe as possible. We have a, the Sullivan Center for Innovation and Leadership here. And the theme of that is to tackle real-world problems. And when it, when the pandemic first really came to light here in the community, there was a shortage of PPE for first responders and healthcare workers. So the design team, the adults, the faculty of Sullivan sat down and started designing face shields. And we, I think to this point, we've given away around 16,000 that we've designed. And they've been approved by different hospitals for use and things like that. So I've seen pictures of them being used in neurosurgery. So we feel comfortable with the face shields we've developed and we've turned our focus now to um, making them for the student population, our teaching faculty and staff. And when we can, we're still working with other schools to provide them to other schools as well. Will you be asking the students to eat their lunch with the shields on? Yeah, so that was one of the benefits of working with the hospitals is that we had to create a special design for surgical loops, kind of the little magnifying glasses that surgeons wear that stick out from your eyes. So it's a little bit further away from your face. So we took that design and worked off it to build the shield that our students will have, which allow you to eat lunch. It's a, it's a little offset a little further from your face. So you can drink from a hydro flask. You can eat lunch with it. Now, another school, I think, used clear shower curtain liners in their setup. Uh, are you doing <laughs> yeah. anything like that? Well, in the first days of doing this, we, when we were serving the first responders in hospitals, uh, healthcare workers, we bought um, covers, kind of see-through covers, the kind you would get at FedEx Kinko's, right? And we used those for shields. We bought legal-sized laminate sheet. 
and ran thousands of pieces through, of laminate through the laminator to make it clear and use those. Uh, and we evolved. Where we are now, we buy rolls of uh, 20 millimeter thick, very transparent, very particular plastics, and we've had dyes created to cut those out of those rolls, cut it into shields, the shields that we need. If there's a will, there's a way, and, and, and we're innovating. Yeah, I mean, it's the Center for Innovation and Leadership, right? So I'm very happy that the folks involved there stepped up and, you know, it benefited the community, and now it's, it's benefiting our school and some of our, our other schools. Is there anything else that you can share with us that, that you're trying that might be different? You know, most schools know what they would like to do. We're, we're all working off the same toolkit with slightly different variations, right? I, I think we're probably on the most conservative end of that spectrum by saying we want both. We want a face shield and a face mask while everybody's inside, and that when you go outside, you can pull your face mask down as long as you have your face shield on, right, uh, to get a break from the face mask. But I, I think, you know, everybody's got the same playbook of PPE, hygiene, distancing, cohorting, uh, symptom monitoring. We're, we're doing that as well at Iolani. Every every parent and student will get an app for every student. They'll be required to log in and answer uh, five health questions that are COVID symptoms, the main COVID symptoms, and also give us a temperature reading. So, and that will be seen by our nurses and things like that, and coordinated in terms of how we support families um, and you know absences and things like that. A lot of planning and uh, forethought going into getting kids back on campus. And that, that's, uh, yeah, that's the safety side. You know, then the other side that all the schools know is how complicated it is to try to run an online program as well. Right? It's, it's a highly non-trivial thing to say, okay, we're going to try to provide online education that's nearly equivalent to what you would get on campus. And you folks are doing blended, right? Some on in person and some remote? Correct. So our families can choose if they want to be online. It's entirely optional or if they want to be on campus. Do you have a, a number yet? We are sending out this week a questionnaire to ask families what they want to do. I mean, I would say in general, if the survey is answered by students, I can predict what the number is going to be. I mean, I know by and large, kids want to get back to school because they want to see each other. Again, bring them in, get them on board with what it means to be safe. The mutual responsibility, right? You know, really, really driving home the idea that you're wearing this stuff not just to protect yourself, but to protect everybody around you, right? And if we all do that, we can have a school. Someone said to me months ago that instead of calling this the new normal, we should call it normal plus because a lot of what we're going through ultimately is pushing us forward with a lot of innovation and a lot of good things that we'll continue to use once we come out of this. That was Tim Cottrell, headmaster of Iolani School, talking about back-to-school preparations. It's now time for the latest COVID-19 news from the BBC. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Wednesday the 29th of July. I'm Oliver Conway. US health advisor Anthony Fauci urges Americans not to be distracted by political infighting. The Hajj pilgrimage begins in Saudi Arabia with extra precautions and Instagram censures the pop singer Madonna for misinformation. According to the latest tally, the US has now recorded more than 150,000 coronavirus deaths, with fatalities rising at the fastest rate for weeks. There are signs that new infections are beginning to slow, but not everywhere. America's top infectious diseases expert, Anthony Fauci, has warned states like Tennessee, Ohio and Kentucky to get a grip on their outbreaks. Speaking to the BBC a day after President Trump questioned his high approval ratings, Dr Fauci urged Americans not to be distracted by political infighting. What we have got to try to do individually and as a society is to make sure we understand that the enemy here is the virus. This is no time to have political bickering and political fighting. We have a common enemy. We have a common enemy in the United States and we have a common global enemy. This is a historic pandemic. There's no time to be distracted in things that are not directly against the virus. The annual Muslim pilgrimage, the Hajj, has begun in Saudi Arabia, but it's been dramatically scaled back because of the pandemic, as Martin Bashir explains. Last year, more than two million Muslims circled the Kaaba in Mecca, the most sacred site in Islam. But in June, the Saudi Arabian government announced that no foreigners would be allowed to perform the Hajj and that residents aged over 65 or with chronic illness should also not attend. 
The restrictions have not only impacted worshippers, they've also hit the kingdom's income. The Hajj is Saudi's second largest source of revenue after oil, contributing around $12 billion annually. Doctors in Zimbabwe say seven babies died in a single night in Harare Central Hospital because of staffing issues related to the coronavirus. Andrew Harding reports. Eight mothers needed to deliver their babies by urgent caesarean section. Seven of the babies died. Two doctors with direct knowledge of the maternity ward described it as the tip of the iceberg. The babies died because their mothers, two with ruptured uteruses, were left unattended for days in a hospital where nurses are on strike, medicine and PPE are in desperately short supply and doctors are overwhelmed. Many smaller clinics have closed in Harare. That's forced pregnant women to crowd into the city's larger state hospitals, which are unable to cope. People in Hong Kong have been urged to stay indoors following warnings the city is on the verge of a large-scale community outbreak of COVID-19. The territory's chief executive, Carrie Lam, recorded this video message. To protect our loved ones, our healthcare staff and Hong Kong, I appeal to you to follow strictly the social distancing measures and stay at home as far as possible. If we stand united and work together, we can suppress this epidemic again. Some scientists fear that a strain of the virus circulating in Hong Kong has stopped mutating, suggesting it may now have become well adapted to human transmission. Stephen McDonnell has more details about the outbreak. Hong Kong had been one of the world's coronavirus bright spots. Not anymore. An outbreak of locally spread infections has come from an unknown source and has kept building in clusters in different parts of the city. For just over a week, more than 100 new cases have been added to the official count every day. Restaurants are back to home delivery only. Bars, gyms and other public spaces have been ordered to close again. Masks are mandatory. The pop star Madonna has been censured by Instagram after sharing a misleading video about coronavirus treatments. The singer, who has more than 15 million followers, added a caption claiming that a vaccine had been found but was being hidden to help the rich get richer. Instagram blurred the video, stating it contained false information. It has since been deleted. As infections rise in parts of Europe, the French health minister says he doesn't want to see borders being closed again. Olivier Varin also wants to avoid another lockdown in France, but warned the fight against the virus had not yet been won. We are not in a second wave of the coronavirus. The epidemic is continuing with a greater or lesser effect, depending on the countries and cities concerned. But we want to be able to protect the most vulnerable, break the chains of infection, and once again explain to the French that the battle is not over. And that's the latest coronavirus global update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, dedicated to the idea that everyone should have a decent place to live and committed to bringing people together to build homes. HonoluluHabitat.org I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll learn how the FCC auctions frequencies and how this is beneficial to Native communities. We'll explore what can be done with a 2.5 gigahertz frequency and how this seemingly technical resource can be applied to Hawaiian homelands. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. Today's quiz was inspired by one of our young listeners. We're testing your knowledge of locomotor skills, not 
locomoco. For those of you who have never heard of the term, locomotor skills are in use all around you. It's the physical action that moves a person from one place to another. This includes walking, running, skipping, hopping, galloping, and jumping. In relation to the physical development of children, toddlers are generally ready to practice walking around 12 months. Over the next year, their abilities increase and they start running, hopping, and jumping. The more challenging skills like galloping, sliding, and skipping can start around 36 months. Child development experts say it's important to practice locomotor skills with our keiki because it helps their coordination. So the question of the day is, what's the difference between skipping and galloping? Think you know? Call 941-3689 or toll-free 1-877-941-3689 with the correct answer and you win an HPR reusable tote bag. Stay tuned. The answer is just a hop, skip, and a jump away. Skip, skip, skip to my loo. Skip, skip, skip to my loo. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. Skip, skip, skip to Malu. Skip, skip, skip to Malu. Skip, skip, skip to Malu. Skip to Malu, my darling, singing. Skip, skip, skip to Malu. Skip, skip, skip to Malu. Skip, skip, skip to Malu. Skip to Malu, my darling. On the long view today, we set our sights across the Pacific to Portland, Oregon, which has been locked in protests for weeks. And in the headlines today, our political analyst, Neil Milner, joins us to talk about the turmoil. Neil, what's up with Oregon? Well, what's up is still pretty fluid, but we do know that the protests continue, as does the federal law enforcement authorities. Law enforcement meaning Border Patrol and uh, some other places, not the FBI, not regular police. Uh, where the situation stands right now is that it's still legally fluid. So the same question remains as has remained before. Can or may the federal government send in these people to enforce the law, as they see it, to quell violence? And second, if the answer to that question is yes, uh, are they behaving in a constitutional way? Because they still have to behave in a constitutional way. The devil, as uh, the professor that I've been looking at, his work's been looking at, Steve Laddick, says the devil is really in the details. On the one hand, you have federalism, right? Federalism says you don't have a national police force. You have, in a sense, federal laws and uh, laws that other 50 states have. Federal government cannot just come in and make state law, um, and it cannot just come in whenever it wants to. There has to be some reasons either stated by the Congress or through the Constitution. So that puts a, that, that's the hampering thing. On the other hand, federal troops, federal uh, uh, responses have been used even when governors have not wanted them. That's how we segregated, desegregated the schools. There are laws that, that allow for that. The military and the National Guard does occasionally get called out. The Minnesota National Guard was called out to deal with the uh, protests in, in May. So the real question is, uh, so the first question, can this be done, is really still being litigated. There's no answer yet, and I want to, let me just say here that this is more than a legal question, and I so don't think that this is just going to be settled by lawyers and judges. But uh, the first case that went to court uh, the, 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 the first challenge to the Fed's authorities to have these troops there um, was essentially thrown out of court for a technical reason having to do with standing. It's still being litigated. But what we know is, is this. You are much more likely to be able to send in federal authorities, let's call them, legally if they're there to protect federal property. So if they're there, say, to protect the courthouse, that's, that's on, your, on fairly good legal, not necessarily political footing. But the real question is, what can those people who are protecting the courthouse do uh, in order to protect the courthouse? 
Um, for example, and this is where the devil in, in the details, can they, how far can they chase protesters? What can they do to protesters? For certain, they can't violate the Constitution. They can't violate your rights to search and seizure. They can't arbitrarily arrest you. That's pretty much where we are legally right now, and that's going to be litigated. But on the ground, what's happening is very important to understand, and that is as the Trump people, including our attorney general, keep labeling these people on the streets as protesters, as anarchists, and as taking over the, uh, the old issue for that African Americans are mostly interested in just simply creating chaos, which is a nice way to label your enemies, what you really see on the ground is a whole increase in protest by such anarchists, in quotes, as a group of mothers leading the march, holding arms. Um, and so part of the question here has to do with how President Trump operates, uh, and that is that the real question is, does this, is this the right thing to do? Now, that's a political question, right? It's definitely a political question. Trump doesn't think in terms of what are the norms. The norms in situations like this generally are that you're pretty cautious about using federal authorities. For example, the military has been pretty open about trying to convince the president not to use military presence to deal with these protesters, because the military sees all kinds of problems with that, not the least of which is a lot of the military is made up of the same kind of people that are, are protesting. So, so that's, that's part of it. So the, the, the question of, is it legal? The answer is the devil's in the detail. The, the question of, is it the right thing to do? I think that's more of an open question. But I think people have to be very careful and very skeptical in allowing the Trump administration and, say, Fox News, which pretty much follows that formula, to define these people on the streets in a certain way. Well, um, from what I've been reading, I mean, uh, uh, early on we saw that uh, they were making arrests and, and they didn't have any identifying yeah. uh, uniforms on, so he didn't know who was whisking you away in the car, right, or in a well, van. Well, that's right. I mean, that starts sounding a little bit secret police right? Exactly. And that's what I meant by the second question. Even if they have the constitutional authority to be there, the federal troops, that doesn't, they, they still have to follow the same kind of constitutional rules that, uh, that anyone else in authority would have to follow. Right, so are they behaving? You yeah, know, are they uh, behaving in a, in a proper way? And the answer is there's certainly been enough situations where they haven't. But, you know, it's, it's far beyond that kind of thing. If you just step back and saying you have federal troops, federal um, uh, authorities, they're not really troops, who are not trained for riot control, being in this kind of situation, you have an increasingly passionate uh, set of protesters, and there's no indication that the protest is becoming more limited. You're asking for a lot of trouble because there's a lot of research that says that hardline approaches to breaking up protests simply makes matters worse. So I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is this, that people have to try to get real about all of these kinds of protests and look at what's actually happening and to understand that the language that uh, authorities use in favor of sending these kind of troops in is, uh, is very important to understand to see how loaded it is. Don't take political language for granted. You should never do that anyway. Uh, take a, uh, a closer look at Portland. But this is clearly going to continue. And one other interesting thing is, uh, in some of the situations now where he says he's, Trump says he's going to send in uh, more federal authorities, for example, Milwaukee, he's doing it in a way that has a more limited brief, that has a more limited uh, uh, set of what they're supposed to do early on. There, They're supposed to look at at, uh, at gun violence. And I wonder if that might happen in, in some other cities where the um, people may be more, the political officials may be more willing to have them in. On the other hand, that's not happening in Chicago. The mayor right. has been very clear she doesn't want their help. 
um, and and so and, and that's where it stands. This is another situation, by the way, where police unions become totally involved in politics because they tend to take the side of having more federal authority in there. Yeah, but I think, like you said, how are they behaving, right? I mean, oh yeah, I, think... I mean that's that's got to be an issue, regardless of um, regardless of whether the feds can be there in the first place. They've got to behave in a certain way, and it's not all that clear to me that uh, folks who sent in the, the federal law enforcement people are really all that concerned about that part. Yeah, it makes me nervous when I hear about journalists who are clearly labeled as journalists getting hit by yep. uh, paintball guns and, uh, and and other observers that are being gassed. So Yeah, yeah the ACLU, in fact, has a lawsuit filed on behalf of uh, journalists in Portland along those same kinds of issues, because there you really are raising a freedom of the press issue uh, that's much much more pertinent. That's their, that's their way into that case. Right, and then the, the developments today, uh, they have reached a tentative agreement that they're going to start to pull some of those federal agents back and that the state uh, troops will come in and help protect the courthouse there. Well, that's interesting. That, I mean, the state troops would probably be, I don't know, it. It might be that, that he'll activate the National Guard. I didn't see that uh, particular clip that you're talking about. Did he say the National Guard, or uh, there really isn't a, an active state police in Oregon? So that may be that may be the way that reasonable people are trying to deal with this. But the idea that protests are going to go away because uh, folks start to say you know what, maybe you should compromise and back away from the federal buildings. Maybe you should do some other things in order to keep the president, uh, in, in, in order to kind of blunt uh, President Trump's action. Thanks so much, Neil. You know, we have been talking with Neil Milner, retired professor of political science and our contributing editor of our segment, The Long View. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering reconnections to the art, courtyards, and the museum community. Open Thursdays to Sundays with new evening hours. HonoluluMuseum.org. We're going back to the 80s. The American people want their government to get tough and to go on the offensive. When President Reagan accelerated the war on drugs. With more ferocity than ever before. And backed a type of drug rehab that sent its participants to work for no pay. We have found that nothing works as well as work itself. Our investigative series, American Rehab, continues on the next Reveal. Beginning tonight at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. Teetering on a fiscal cliff. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So we've got a story today by Stuart Yurton. Yes, and Stuart is off today, so I'm the lucky one. I drew the, <laughs> the short straw, but I'm happy to be here today to talk not just one fiscal cliff, but as Stuart writes in his story, it's our lead story today, it's really two fiscal cliffs. The one that most of us know about, I guess I should say economic cliff, is, is this Friday. And what happens is those $600 supplemental unemployment benefit checks that have been going to a whole lot of people across the country, including in Hawaii, about $1.3 billion worth. That's going to stop. Um, they there is, And right now, it doesn't appear that uh, Congress, particularly the Senate-controlled, Republican-controlled Senate and the Trump administration and the Democrats in the House have not agreed on you know whether to keep that package going. So that is the first cliff that we're facing. There's some other things that are happening Friday. But then the second cliff is at the end of the year. And the catch here is all that federal money from the CARES Act, and right now we're talking over $7 billion total now for the islands, all that money, um, well, <laughs> if we don't account for it, if we don't spend it appropriately, we actually have to pay the federal government back. And it could be in the millions of dollars. That's what House Speaker Scott Psyche is worried about and has told Stewart in our story. Yeah, and, and, you know, we're doing lots of stories about the, the back-to-school concerns, mm. and, you know, you just kind of wonder, like, okay, 
can we give some of that money to schools to use, you know? Yeah, that is one of the things that they've been trying to wrestle with. As you know, at the federal level, the Trump administration wants the schools to reopen. Of course, uh, right now, locally, it looks like we're going to push that back a little bit, right? We were scheduled to open mm -hmm. on August 4th, and now the discussion is to, post, to push it back uh, later into the month. That will be decided, I believe, tomorrow at the Department of Education Board of Ed meetings. But... You know, it's not just those those checks that went out to help folks who are on unemployment. We also, meaning Hawaii, received $2.5 billion in those Paycheck Protection Program monies from the Small Business Administration. Most of that pretty much uh, was completed in June. And the trick here is unless we can demonstrate to the federal government that we're spending the money appropriately and that we are spending it on time, there is this catch that we could have to pay it back. Psyche, the speaker, has set up a subcommittee. You know how he's running that House Special COVID-19 yes. committee? Senate has one, too. Uh, but uh, Psyche in the House has got a special subcommittee to track down that money uh, because, as, as Jill Takuda, who actually works for the Hawaii Data Collaborative, which is also involved in trying to track the money, if, if you can't demonstrate that you're being fiscally solvent, you know, why should the federal government keep giving you money unless you can demonstrate that it went to a, a, the right place and was used wisely? Right. You've got you to account for it and keep track of it yes. and spend it. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, there's it, it's a lot to keep track of. I was surprised. Uh, you know, think about it. Seven billion dollars approaching eight billion dollars. Other examples are tens of millions of dollars for child care services. Of course, that's been so important with folks uh, at home with their kids right now. And then there's also a whole lot of money for telehealth. That's become very popular given that we all can't go see doctors as frequently because of COVID-19. So all of that has to be accounted for. Yeah, it, it is kind of scary. You know, as we figure we're, we're mid-year. You've got this one cliff this mm. week and then the other one just in a few months uh, down the road. Right, exactly. And now we should, if we haven't mentioned this already, probably your reporting may have uh, at HBR got this, but I should just uh, make sure that we understand that locally the legislature uh, did approve a hundred dollar a week bonus for the for unemployment insurance locally, uh, as well as five hundred dollars per month for housing rental assistance for folks that qualify. So there are efforts here at the state level to make sure people get through people most in need. Yeah, right. They're trying to prop people up, um, but yeah, lots of uncertainty still. Right. And of course, hanging, as we said, over all of this is whether they can reach agreement in Washington. And right now they appear far apart. Democrats want three trillion, three trillion dollars for the next uh, stimulus. And Republicans are stuck at one trillion. That is quite a wide gap. Yeah. So we've uh, really got to hang on as to get through this week <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then, yeah, uh, try and uh, see how we can uh, spend that money. But uh, keep track of it. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what we're doing in particular here at Civil Beat. The, the accountability and transparency is so key uh, to our operation. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Visit civilbeat.org to read that economic story and more. They say that 15 minutes of classical music a day is all it takes for Keiki to reap benefits from this rich art form. How do you do that? Simple. Tune to HPR2, your home for classical music, while they're doing homework, getting ready for bed, or in the car with you. It's easy, and it'll help lay the foundation for a lifetime of music appreciation. Listen to HPR2 wherever you are. Tune in on your radio, stream on our mobile app, or listen on your smart speaker. Earlier in the show, we asked you about locomotor skills, the eight different movement skills that Keiki usually start learning by age three. This includes walking, running, hopping, jumping, galloping, sliding, leaping, and skipping. All of these are the foundation of human movement. In a child's development, toddlers are usually ready to practice walking around 12 months, running, hopping, and jumping by 24 months, and at 36, they begin to master the more complex art of galloping, sliding and skipping. In the long run, practice helps with the child's coordination. Today we asked you what was the difference between skipping and galloping, the two forms of locomotion that are based on patterning and rhythm making. Well, it's all in the feet. Skipping involves alternating feet in a step and a hop on the same foot. 
followed by a step hop on the opposite foot. Galloping is moving forward with the same foot leading over and over again. Congratulations to our winner, uh, Joanne Hicks from Maui. She uh, shares that her son, Kaipo, who is just over two years old, he has lots of locomotor skills. <laughs> He's a very active little guy. But that's today's quiz, and thanks to three-year-old Vehi from Kailua for inspiring today's quiz. Share your background uh, ideas with us at TalkBack at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Historically, the Big Island has been first in the crosshairs when the state is faced with a hurricane threat. As a former head of civil defense for the county, Mayor Harry Kim draws on a vast body of experience and some key insights on how officials within the state's largest landmass have prepared, prepared for disaster. But with the added wrinkle of COVID-19, how have emergency preparations changed in the days of social distancing? The Conversations Harrison Patino spoke with Mayor Kim on his long history of preparing for the worst while hoping for the best. Most emergencies, you know, it comes from the east to the west, and we're smack dab the most eastern states, so common sense prevails, I guess. The direction really don't matter as much to us in regards to our preparedness. You know, it's just we take each storm or system that comes because I learned that, my goodness, I learned that back in 1978, and I can tell you the name of the hurricane. It was Hurricane Fico, and ironically, from the, almost the same direction as this one. And it caused destructive waves in Kalapana, isolated that village because it destroyed all the roads, huge boulders, you know, in the bayfront of Hilo. And this was while Hurricane I was 300-plus miles away. So you learn that, how waves travel, what causes it, importance of knowing a surge. Now we can jump forward all the way to the year 2020 today on a a hurricane called Douglas, and, you know, it tracks in your mind all the things you've learned. And the one thing I've learned with all the systems that approach the island, each one is unique. Uh, The day you start to play God thinking you know uh, what scenarios are, uh, you'll be very surprised who calls a shot. That's lesson number one I'll always remember. Number two, with all the things you learn to remind yourself not to be a forecaster, you still do and learn the hard lessons of it. Who in his right mind would ever believe that while you're addressing the hurricane coming straight for the island and state of Hawaii, you'll have to you know, put away things of the COVID-19 and it affects the other because of your shelter, the use of manpower, et cetera, et cetera. And one thing I learned about this is, you know, be prepared for the, any scenario. But even with that, I never would have dreamt of a scenario of a pandemic situation that would affect our shelter space, availability, the numbers game in comparison to the needs of a hurricane. And so we had to do some fast adjustments there. Now, you bring up a good point there. The nature of disaster preparedness has fundamentally changed because state and county governments have been dealing with a global disaster since the better part of March. So how is preparation different this time for Hurricane Douglas? Well, I'll tell you, uh, I've asked myself uh, a lot of things just to make sure I remember and learn. But uh, COVID-19 is my first real pandemic kind of thing. And the very first thing I learned from it, and I embed that in my mind, be aware the definition of a pandemic. A pandemic uh, is uh, basically a global thing, potentially. Number two, uh, know that it is new, and association with new means we learn every day of it. And we had enough health officials throughout the United States, even Hawaii, that reminded us of that. You, You crave for answers and know that we're learning every day. And I think all we have to do is reflect a little bit what they said, who was being affected. We thought maybe focus on, unfortunately, the seniors. And we find out later on that's not true. You know, all kind of things we believe at the beginning is so different. Even on face masks, which we say now is critical in regards to mitigate uh, the potential harm. At the beginning, you know, it was uh, not of that. So that's the one thing we learn about this pandemic. It is new. Therefore, newness means we learn every day. 
the new also means obviously there is no quick cure and hopeful for vaccine and those things. And this is what you have to mentally prepare yourself not to fix anything as a, a rule because that will change. And this is changing rapidly, I think, because of mankind we think uh, we know and we find out we we don't know that's a hurdle we have to get over so we don't make fix uh, in our mentality how we're going to handle this other counties during the scare for douglas have noted that social distancing presented sort of a, an immediate concern with emergency shelters and the difficulty that that presents huddling together in large numbers yeah maybe even more so in this way you know hawaii island has a lot of graces and one of it is is five times bigger than all the other islands individually, and I think twice as big as all of the islands combined. And so therefore, with that size is size, but with that, uh, our population is scattered. And with that, you know, in regards to availability of shelters and those resources, those things. And one of the things we found out real fast is that the most threatened, I think, communities initially was of the First of all, the east side and the northeast side of Hamakua and Kohala. So I'll just pick on North Kohala. You know, there's it's an old plantation down, one of the most beautiful places to live, I think, today. But uh, it does not have any resorts. And that's, you know, a great lifestyle is, you know, ranches and farms and a pristine way of life. But there's no hotels and therefore very, very few new facilities. New facilities mean new building codes and structural integrity. And so what we had there identified definitely is a shortage of you know shelters. And what we have to do now is to make sure we retrofit uh, the best buildings for future hurricanes. Well, that's an interesting point. In your words, do you think that emergency planning under pandemic conditions presented or exposed any flaws in the county's response to natural disasters? I, I think the flaws is that you know, uh, it's not because they're, they come together. I don't care if it was separate. The pandemic, gratefully, is the first time that it has hit anyone in the United States in this mess uh, that's alive today or much less in emergency management positions. So when I say new, it is new for everybody, including the most experienced uh, people in regards to emergency response. And so many things have changed from the beginning of February when the United States and Hawaii first got involved of what we believe of the pandemic. Uh, so those are the things we had to shake uh, in regards to addressing the pandemic and the hurricane at the same time. Now, shifting gears here a little bit, was there any worry on your end of ICU capacity in a potential double hurricane COVID-19 scenario? No, not really. I mean, I would say this of Hawaii Island. Uh, we've been very, very fortunate in regards to our uh, load of positive cases, especially those that have gone to the hospital. I, I can say this with total accuracy. We have had only one person that had had to be admitted to the hospital for stay. We had others went for check, but not to stay. And that one person is still there. She's from Georgia and, uh, you know, got infected by the disease while she was in Georgia. And unfortunately for about three weeks ago, she was admitted to a local hospital and remains there. But the good news is she is much better today and I expect her to be well in a limited time. And so in regards to taxing on medical resources, it never was and hopefully never will be. Now, on a final note here, in recent news, Japan just announced that Hawaii was listed amongst its travel bubble, so-called uh, 12 nations or regions that they deem safe enough to travel. Coming as the mayor of Big Island on this, do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, yes. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll grab this opportunity because it is uh, important for people to know what my position is uh, uh, because of misunderstanding. I am at this point because of what is happening on the mainland, I set my thresholds on where we should go based on not what is happening here, but primarily what is happening elsewhere. And in regards to tourism, resorts, the university plan, uh, I think it's known that I am against uh, going forward with any of those at this time because of what, what is happening from the mainland. For example, I think the university will tell you that uh, uh, close to or half and more of the students coming to Hawaii 
comes from either Texas, Arizona, or from California. And if you look at all the data for the past many, many weeks or days, you know, they're in a, almost an uncontrolled situation, and I do not think it's an acceptable risk to have those people invited here at this time, as well as the tourists. Now, in regard, until we have a real solid system of identifying, isolating, and enforcing our policies here, which we do not. In regards to the Japan, I believe that Japan made a policy like Europe and other countries that the United States is a no-no as far as traveling or receiving travelers from because of our high numbers until I think our governor uh, made an appeal to point out that yes, we are United States, obviously, but uh, please check our numbers because our numbers are good. And I, I believe that for the state of Hawaii to have a system of inviting people from countries like Japan, Korea, or New Zealand would be very good for us. And we have a responsibility to make sure they are healthy when they leave here. But I really believe that this is a great transitional opportunity of working with those countries uh, to start with Japan. First of all, Japan, as you know, accounts for anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of the income generated from tourists from that one country alone. And they are in a really good position as far as control of the virus in their country. And uh, I think a relationship could be made on testing there to ensure their safety when they come here and testing when they go back to ensure safety of, of the tourists when they go back home. And those are the things I think are really good for both countries. And I think any difficulties can really be worked out to the benefit of both. That was Big Island Mayor Harry Kim talking to the Conversations Harrison Patino about Hurricane Douglas and reopening travel up to the islands. Well, that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow we take a look at Climate for Change, Part 2. Got a story idea or feedback? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. We are on Facebook and Twitter, and you can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find all of our archive shows online. Look under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. (music) 